Well, saints, if you would, open your Bibles to the book of Jude. So, um, as was said, this is the last um, message that we'll have this time around in the scriptures. We've done every book, we've done every chapter, we've done every verse, and so we're, we're now looking at this last section. And as we cover Jude in its entirety on Wednesday, I want to look just at this one verse here this morning, because this verse here is often taken out of context. And there is a context, there is an understanding of what it is that Jude through the Spirit desires to teach us as we come to this portion of Scripture. And so we see here in Jude, verse 3. So as we look to this Jude 3, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Within this passage, we begin to see there's this opening up and the issue that most people have a problem with, a misunderstanding in contending earnestly for the faith. Contend does not mean to be contentious. It doesn't mean to fight others. The, the word content, in, in a sense, means to agonize. There, there's a part of Scripture that this word, at least the agonized part, is used in Colossians 4.12, where Paul says, I'm laboring fervently for you in prayer. And that's what it means. It means to labor fervently. It means to um, put in energy. And so we see here that he talks about this con you know, the contending for the faith, not being contentious in your faith. And I think this is where a lot of people use this verse as, as that authority to get in people's faces to try to lead them into their way of thinking. But what we see here is this, and there's a context that we're going to see ultimately brings about this whole understanding of a unity. It says this, beginning in verse 3, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. There is an understanding that there is this common salvation that is going on. And through that, what we recognize is this. This common salvation that we all have is basically there are not many ways to be saved. We're all saved in the same way. It's a common salvation. And so there, there's, there's, there's one way that is common to all men and for all men. And within that common salvation, keep in mind that we all have this common faith or this belief of how we are saved. So just mark that. There's a common salvation which falls to a common faith. And so basically, in other words, we're all part of this family. Every one of us, we're a common salvation. It's been said this, that although we're all spread out before the cross, the ground is level. None of us are on a higher platform there at the cross. We're there, all of us being sinners, all of us saved by grace. There's this incredible unity that comes. And so we see that we are all part of this family, this beautiful building 
the body of Christ, we call it the church. And that's what we are. So regardless of your age, regardless of your personality, regardless of your giftings, and regardless of, of basically how you sometimes walk out your salvation, keep in mind that we are all part of this body of Christ. Now, some of us are hands, some of us are feet, some of us are heads. We all are different parts of the body. So we don't do all things the same. But keep in mind, we're united because what we're the body of Christ. He needs to be glorified in what the hand does. He needs to be glorified in what the foot does. He needs to be glorified in what the mouth does. Every part of the body has one purpose, to fulfill the, the will of the head, which is Jesus Christ. And I think this is what we see. There's a common salvation. It all points to the work of Jesus Christ. And so we see here that what we're recognizing is that here, when we deal with this area of now coming to this point of this defense of the faith, and this is what we're looking at now in this latter part of verse 3, he said, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you. In other words, imploring you, really, in a sense, begging you, contend earnestly for the faith. Agonize over the faith. In other words, you need to recognize this is difficult work. In other words, if it isn't difficult, you don't agonize. You don't, you don't have to work too hard to do it. But this faith that you're to work towards is something that he says, it's difficult work. Now, as a Christian, if you've been walking with the Lord for any amount of time, you'll realize that so often you'll hear a message and it's like, oh, Lord, that's so easy. You make it sound so easy. And then you try to walk it and you realize it's a little bit more difficult than it, it, it sounds. It's so easy to say, just love one another. And you say, oh, that's easy. Just love one another until it's like, are they included in another? You know, I, I hope they're not included. Can I love everybody except them? Can I love them differently? And we realize sometimes the message seems easy, but the walking of it, when you deal with our own flesh, when we deal with our own carnality, to, to walk these things are difficult. Now, when it comes with contending for the faith, I want you to understand that it's you and I diligently working this difficult task. And, and it's about the faith being lived out in me. So often when we say contending for the faith, it's always, you know, trying to get someone else going outward and trying to get them to agree with me. When you take a look at the fullness of the context of what this letter is, I want to bring you to the end of the epistle. I want you to turn to verse 20 and verse 21 here of the book of Jude. It says this, but you beloved building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. We begin to see something about the Lord. He says in verse 20, building yourselves up. Not trying to get others to agree with you. Now, it's contending, it's agonizing over my own faith, my own walk, the purity of that. 
And I think what happens is that when I'm agonizing over mine, I'm building myself up. I'm praying in the Holy Spirit. I'm seeking God's guidance. How are you leading me? What do you want from me? And then it says this in verse 21. Keep ourselves, keep yourself in the love of God. Keep yourself in the love of God. Really keep yourself by thinking, you know what? I know that you love me. And if you love me, you love these other people as well as you love me. Would you guide me in this? And so it's important to see here, he says, keep yourself in the love of God. And he says, looking for the mercy. Wow, it's almost like the mercy of God endures forever or something like that. It's just where you're just looking to this mercy again and again and everything that happens. But you're looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. I'm keeping myself recognizing that I'm growing diligently in my faith because it's about eternal life. It's about what God has done. So we're seeing here, it's about me. In other words, it's that principle where, you know, where Jesus taught about there in Matthew chapter 7, those verses 24 through 27, when he talked about the, the, the planks in the eye. And it's important to, 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 to recognize that there are certain times where... Um, we, we look to that area and we see, yes, God, um, I've been trying to get other people and dealing with their, their planks, and, 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 but it's about you. It is about your heart. It's about who you are. And so as I look to that, it's important to see, you know, am, am I looking at the, 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 the planks in other people's eyes? Am I looking in, in, in the specks, you know, in, in my own eyes? And so we begin to see here that that heart of the, the Lord where he begins to, to guide us and lead us. And I think it's so important. We have this tendency of always wanting to deal with the, the specks in our brother's eye rather than dealing with the planks that are in our own eye. But the defense of the faith. I want to take you to what this faith is that Jude is talking about, where he says, contend earnestly for the faith. What is this faith? Well, basically, there, there's one point that you can sort of just lock in, that the faith is the fundamental teachings of Christ. There are certain things in Scripture or those doctrines that all Christians believe. Now, keep in mind that you're going to realize that, yeah, there are some times you get up with Christians and we're going to have disagreements in what's known as minor doctrines. And, and that's common. That happens. So there are going to be where we call it the majors and the minors. There's major doctrine, there's minor doctrine. And what happens is in the major doctrines, there are no Christians that disagree. They, everyone agrees. Anyone who's a Christian agrees. In other words, we agree what? Jesus is God. That God came to earth as a man. And that as a man, he went to the cross and he died. And that death was what? It was the payment of our sins. And when he died, he was put in the grave. And three days later, he rose again. And it was that death that was the payment for our sins. We all agree with that as Christians. No, no Christian disagrees. And if anyone does disagree on those majors, then they're not a Christian. And so what we see here is this. There are certain things that we all agree on in Christians, and, and this is the gospel. You know where Paul was writing to the church of Corinth? And there in chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel. 
He said this, which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which you are saved if you hold fast to the word which I preach to you, lest you believed in vain. He says, I've given you this word. I've given you a true defense. He says this in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. In other words, I didn't make it up. That Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now you understanding what's happening now. Jesus Christ died for our sins. The very first thing he says. Jesus Christ died for my sins, but he didn't just die. He died according to the scriptures. In the volume of the book, it is written of him. And this is what the good news is. This is what the gospel is. Jesus died for my sins. The scripture from Genesis to Revelation declare that fact, that God would atone for my sin, that my sin needed to be atoned for. Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. In verse 4, that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. You understand how over and over what Paul is trying to say to the church in Corinth is that all these things are not simply me saying it. All these things have been declared and have been declared and been declared. They've been declared in Genesis. They've been declared in Exodus. They've been declared in the Gospels. Every time that you open this word of God, there's a declaration of Jesus Christ. Everything that we see in the Old Testament are shadows, pointers to him because his death is the payment. His death is the one that we all look forward, that everyone looked forward to and that we look back on. It's his death. And all the scriptures portray that. They say that we are saved by what he's done. And so as we look to this, he died for our sins, yes, but, but keep in mind that he died and rose again, which means what? Well, he's the first fruits. As he rose from the dead, so we will also rise from the dead. This is the gospel in a nutshell. Now, keep in mind, I want you to know that Paul wasn't just making this up himself. Jesus himself nailed this same issue. If you're familiar with that passage in Luke chapter 24, what I want to do is I want to start reading in 44 and go through 48 because Jesus himself, after he has resurrected, he comes and appears to his disciples. Now, they're a little bit nervous, but he lets them know, hey, this is, it's me. It really is me. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. But he wants to make this statement and listen to what he says here in verse 44 of Luke 24. Then he spoke to them. These are the words which I spoke to you while I was with you. Do you understand what he's saying? This isn't new. I spoke this to you. I've said this over and over that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Do you understand what he's telling them? Think about this for just a moment. Grasp the meaning of what Jesus is saying. He said, listen, all things must be fulfilled. In other words, everything in the law, everything in the prophets, everything in the psalm had to be fulfilled. Well, how could they be fulfilled? They had to be fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
See, in the volume of the book, it was written of him. He is the last word. He is what all these things pointed to. And so keep in mind that the huge thing that he's actually saying is that here, the Psalms, everything they declare in worship are fulfilled in me. The prophets, everything that they said would happen is fulfilled in me. The law, everything that they're striving for is fulfilled in me. Do you understand that the law is not for us to fulfill? The law was for Jesus Christ to fulfill. This is something that blows people's mind because we're still trying to fulfill the law. Don't, should I do this and shouldn't I do this? Well, of course, you should do that if that's the leading of the Spirit. But it isn't a mandatory thing where we must keep all the laws at all the time. That is simply not what Scripture teaches. It says, let the Spirit guide you to his heart, do those things. But understand, the fulfillment of the law, the law will never be fulfilled by us. And this is why Jesus is so clear, his teaching of what the faith is, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, concerning me. And as we look to this, now we begin to see a heart. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. So he was telling them of all the scriptures that dealt with him. Thus it was written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. Now he tells them, this is what the fulfillment is. It was necessary for me to die, but it was also necessary for me to rise again, which is why I was gone for three days. So we begin to see here that Jesus' teaching of his death and his resurrection, things that was needed in the scripture, and then he says this in verse 47, and that repentance and the remission of sin should be preached in his name. You understand this is what the faith is, repentance and remission of sin, understanding that we are sinners, and understanding that Jesus, his work, is the only thing that brings us to the fulfillment of forgiveness. In other words, that's the righteousness that God demands. So when we look to this, understand what the faith is. These are the fundamentals. Jesus came as God. He lived among us. He died on the cross. That death was payment for our sins. He went to the grave for three days and he rose again. These are the fundamentals. Like I said, no Christian denies that. Paul taught it. Jesus is teaching it. And he says, understand that all the scripture was a pointer to me. And so he says again in verse 47 that repentance, the remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. You know this to be true. And so as we look to this, understand that the key is here in this passage is verse 44. Jesus, all these things, it's of me. I'm the fulfillment of the law. I'm the fulfillment of the prophets. I'm the fulfillment of the Psalms. As we see here, it is not for us to fulfill the law. You guys know that passage when Jesus was teaching the book of Matthew. There in the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus makes this statement, Do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. You understand? 
The law was fulfilled not by us. The law was fulfilled by Jesus Christ. The law was a pointer. So how does that work in the nuts and bolts of things? Keep in mind that one of the clearest teachings dealing with the law and dealing with its fulfillment and dealing with our requirement and how we see the law is found in the book of Romans and the book of Galatians. And I want to take you to Galatians for just a moment to teach you really what this fulfillment is. Jesus says, I have fulfilled the law. I came to fulfill the law. The law is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The law is not fulfilled by us. So if the law was not meant for us to fulfill, but to Jesus to fulfill, take a look at a passage in Galatians chapter 3. I want to read to you verses 14 through 19 initially. And if you have the ability, put a marker here in the book of Galatians. We're going to be referring to it a couple times this morning as this is a major thesis of what Paul is teaching with us and the law. In Galatians 3, beginning in verse 14, and of course the key is going to be verse 19 when we get to it, he says this, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the, the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is a covenant, no one annuls or adds to it. Now, verse 16, to Abraham and to his seed. In other words, singular, to Abraham and to his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as many, but as one. And to your seed, who is Christ. So the promise came to Abraham and to his seed, which would be the Christ who would come through his lineage. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. So when the law comes 430 years later, keep in mind that there was already a covenant, a promise. And that promise was to Abraham and to his seed, which was not us, but to Jesus Christ. So what was this promise? Well, it, it makes this statement here in verse 17. And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant which was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if by the inheritance of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now verse 19. What purpose then does the law serve? Great question. Why is the law? Well, one, we know it was there so Jesus could fulfill it. But what does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made and the appointed and was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. 
Now, this here, verse 19, is the crux to what we're looking at. What purpose then does the law serve? Well, it says this about the law. It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come. What does it mean it was added because of transgressions? Like I said, keep a marker here in the book of um, Galatians. But I want to read to you one portion of scripture found in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 7, verse 5 and 8, this is these two chapters, these two books that are kind of parallel, back and forth, dealing with the law and grace. But what Paul begins to say to the church in Rome, in the book of Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 5, For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members bearing fruit to death. Let me read that again. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law. How can the law arouse sinful passions? But it's what it says. The sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. So what happens is this, as he goes on in verse 6, but now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What then shall we say? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law said you shall not covet. But sin, taking an opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. Again, look at verse 8. Sin, taking the opportunity by the commandment, by the law, sin, by the law, produces in me all manner of evil desire, for apart from the law, sin was dead. So this is a confusing topic. It's a confusing thing. So we recognize here, what does the law do? The law, in a nutshell, allows us to bear the fruit of death. What do I mean by that? Well, look again at verse 5. For we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law. In other words, the law allows us to bear fruit. That were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. The law allows us to bear fruit to death. What does it mean? Let's put it this way. If you're on a road and there is no speed limit sign, you can drive 30 and you're not breaking the law. You can drive 60 and you're not breaking the law. You can drive 120 and you're not breaking the law. Why? Because there is no law that's stated. You're free to do whatever you want to do. But once there's a speed limit sign on that road and you exceed it, then what? Then you break the law. And what scripture teaches is this, that it's not only driving faster than the speed limit is breaking the law, but let's just say you're late and you wished you could drive faster, but you don't because you're good. Well, the very fact that you wanted to drive faster is making you guilty of 
the law because you're already in your heart wanting to say, I don't want to do this. I want to do something else. And that's what Jesus taught. He said, you've heard it said, do not murder. I'm saying if you're angry, all these things he taught, if it's even in your heart, if it's in your thought, you've already broken. And that's what the law does. So keep in mind that the sinful passions that were there aroused in us were part of our nature. We were just sinners by nature. But what the law did was this. It allowed us to bear fruit of death. So when I did what I normally did by nature, and the law says, don't do this, and I did it, like, oh, I deserve death. And then I did something else, and the law says, don't do this. I'm like, oh, I deserve death. The law said, honor your mother and father. And I was two years old. I didn't want to eat my peas. I was deserving of death. And every time that I did something that was against God's law, the law says this, you deserve death. You deserve death. You deserve death. That's what the law did. And so keep in mind, the law bore the fruit of death. Every time that I understood this was the heart of God and I didn't keep it, what does the law do? It says, guess what? I've just borne another fruit. I've just added one more reason why I should die, why I should be separated from God. That's what the law does. The law over and over again tries to tell me I'm not worthy of God. It doesn't make me worthy. It tells me I'm not worthy. So keep in mind that I can keep one point of the law, but if I break eight points of the law, guess what? I'm still deserving of death. And I can keep eight points of the law, but if I fail in one point of the law, guess what? I'm still deserving of death. If I keep a hundred points of the law and I make one mistake, guess what? I'm worthy of death. You understand what the law does? The law simply allows me to bear fruit of death. It arouses in me all of the evil passions. It births in me the reality that I'm not worthy of God, that I'm only worthy of death. It teaches me that I should be like Esau, not Jacob. See, God hated, Jake, God hated Esau, but Jacob I loved. Esau I hated. I deserved to be in Esau's camp. Jacob deserved to be in Esau's camp. Yet what? God loved. Isn't that amazing? This is what the law does. The law tells me over and over again that I'm not worthy of the grace of God. So when we see what the law does, back in Galatians, and I want to read to you this one portion so that you can understand a little bit of, of what here it is that, that God is trying to teach us through this passage. In Galatians chapter 3, I want to read verses 24 and verse 25. It makes this statement, Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we're, we are no longer under a tutor. So the law was a schoolmaster. The law was a teacher. And what the law says is this, go to grace, go to grace. You, you don't deserve anything. You haven't earned anything. You failed, you failed, you failed. Go to grace. That's what the law teaches. And it really was a one-string guitar. That's all it was. You failed, go to grace. You failed, go to grace. That's it. Now, there was no other note that was played. And every time we failed in the law, it says you're deserving of death. Go to grace instead. You understand what this beautiful thing that here the scripture teaches, the law was fulfilled in Christ, not in us. 
The only thing the law did to us was condemn us and drive us to what? To grace. So the law, it says here in verse 24 of Galatians 3, therefore the law was our tutor. It was a schoolmaster. It was a taskmaster to bring us to Christ. Drive us to Christ, if you will, that we might be justified by faith. Do you understand? The law says go to Christ and you're justified by God. That's what we stand on. This is why the law was fulfilled in Jesus. He came, he died, he rose, and in his death was the payment for our sin. In his death was the access to God. Nothing more. So when we're contending for the faith, what I want to do is this. I don't want to focus on me and what I can do to add to the righteousness of Christ. I want to only come to him in gratitude, thanking him because I was deserving of nothing. But yet I can come not through the law, which he fulfilled, but I can come what? Through faith. And only through faith. Nothing more, nothing less. And this is why it's so important to recognize that this is what the law does. Now, after we receive this faith, that we come by faith, we're justified by faith. Verse 25 of Galatians 3 says, but after faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. We don't need the law anymore. I don't need someone saying, go to Christ. Why? I'm already in his arms. Can you imagine if you're there in his arms? and You should really go to Christ. Like, I'm here. I don't have to go there anymore. I'm already here. And when you come to Christ by faith and he wraps you in his arms and he holds you close and you experience his love, when, when someone says, hey, why don't you go back to the taskmaster? Why don't you go back to the, that which says, go to Christ. Go to, why would I do that? I'm already here. I've already have fulfilled what I need to do. I need to be fulfilled by saying, Jesus, you fulfilled the law. I'm coming by faith and faith alone, not of works. It's the promise that was from Abraham and to his seed that the work of my salvation, of your salvation, would be fulfilled. Now, one of the portions that I want you to see, back up to Galatians chapter 2 for just a moment and look here at verses 14 through 16. Galatians 2, 14 through 16 makes this declaration, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel... In other words, what the gospel was really saying, what the gospel really meant, what the faith really was. I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as a Jew, if you, Peter, are now free in grace and you're living the way the Gentiles are free in grace, why do you compel the Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentile, knowing that man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. This is where the key is coming in. We see here this beautiful truth that by the works of the flesh, that no, by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Do you realize it's just saying the same thing over and over again, the same thing that Jesus said. I am the one who came. 
I died for your sins. I'm the fulfillment of the law. That's everything ever scripture taught of. Not that you need to do the law. The law was fulfilled in me. What the law needed to do is you is condemn you. And it did it again and again and again. And every time here was a law, oh, I failed that. I mean, how many times have you been angry at your brother without a cause? How many times have you looked at someone and lusted after them? I mean, you, you take a look at how intricate these things are and understand it. How many times have you coveted? Like, oh, I really wish I had a better car. I wish I had a better house. I wish I had any time that you're saying, God, you're not sufficient. I should have this, not what I have. And when you're thinking that you're already coveting in your heart, that's a lot. But it doesn't make me righteous when I don't covet. It just condemns me every time I do. And this is where the heart of it comes into. Now, if you turn to Galatians chapter 3, I want to read to you verses 11 through 14. It says this, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, have become a curse for us. That is written, curses everyone who hangs on the tree. That the blessing of Abraham, in other words, the promise to Abraham and to his seed, might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And this is the key, that it isn't no longer about the law, but it's what? About having an intimate relationship with God through the leading of the person of the Holy Spirit. Do you understand? That's my direction now. That's my heart. The Holy Spirit now comes inside of us, breathes in us what the will of God is for our lives, and we walk that truth. And so what happens is this, is we're freed now from this desire to say, I need to basically keep the law. And every time I do, look at how righteous I am. Oh, I've prayed for 20 minutes. Look at how righteous I am. Oh, I've witnessed today. Look at how righteous I am. Keep in mind that we cannot add to the righteousness because if you are going to say the law makes me righteous, you can only do one thing. You can't take a little bit of, I'm going to take this law, but not this one. And I'll take this one and not that one. Because my personality fits certain laws and it doesn't fit others. No, it's, it's a whole thing. This isn't Burger King where you can have it your way. You take everything on the law, you keep it all or you failed. So often we have this tendency of thinking that what the law is like is basically you have hear God and then you have all of these links and then you have us being held by them. And so if you think about a chain link on the top and multiple chain links on the bottom, and we think, well, if I break this law, I still have all these other ones holding me up, right? So if you think about it in this way, let's just say there's one ring on the top, 10 rings on the bottom holding you, and then you're on the bottom. Well, if you break one, there's still nine rings holding you, right? But that's not what the law is. See, the law isn't consecutive links holding you to God. The law is, here's God, and you have one link, and then attached to that is another link, attached to that is another link, and another link. They're all in a vertical line. They're not all linked together. So some laws we keep very well. They're like a metal link. That's not going to break. Others, like paper mache. 
Have you ever seen the, the little construction paper links that kids make and they put on a little glue and they, they make a, you know, a little ring of, of you know, lines with it and pretty things? Well, keep in mind, that's us in the law. There are certain laws that you and I break because the link is so flimsy. And if that's on a vertical hole, guess what? If that one breaks, I'm gone. I'm, I'm destroyed. And this is what the law teaches me. I'm condemned, I'm condemned, I'm condemned. If one link breaks, if one law breaks, I'm condemned to death. And I think what happens is this, that we begin to see that this is what Jude is trying to teach us. You need to contend earnestly for this faith. Belief in Jesus Christ and him alone for your salvation. Coming to him and to him alone. And this is that heart that he begins to teach us where he says, listen, keep yourselves in the love of God. And I think it's so important building yourself up in the most holy faith. It's about me being built up. And so when we see this, the, the issue is this. So often when I look to the law and I say, okay, well, the law, then I'm not under the law. This is true. So does that mean if I'm not under the law that I can do whatever I want? Is, is that part of the grace of God that I'm no longer, is, is there no standard at all for me? Now, keep in mind that that's not true either. Take a look at Jude verse 4 because he says this, Certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of God into lewdness. So there's two areas of the faith that we need to be very, very, it's difficult to walk, difficult to believe, and difficult to trust in. That my life is not being marked by God by my keeping the law. My life is being marked by my faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. That's where my righteousness comes from. That's where my salvation comes from. However, in this grace, it doesn't give me the license to sin. Take a look at Jude 4 again. It said, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness. Have you ever heard someone who's practicing sin saying, listen, I'm under grace. I'm just under grace. Well, the issue is, is you can't turn grace into a license to sin. That's never, do you think the Holy Spirit is guiding you into sin? No, no, your flesh is guiding you into sin. See, we're not under the law, but we're still what? We're under the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is never going to point you to sin. The Holy Spirit is going to do what? He's going to reveal what Christ said, and he's going to drive you to Christ. He's going to bring you to Christ again and again and again. This is God's heart. This is my will for your life. Not sin. The Holy Spirit does what? It convicts the world of sin. So when you say you're under grace and you live a life of sin, you're in error on the other side. Be careful because we need to contend earnestly for the faith. So you've got this, this don't turn to the right, don't turn to the left. Don't get where you're caught up on the law and having to keep it. You're saved by grace alone, but you don't use grace as a license to sin either. And what Jude is doing is he's trying to bring this beautiful, beautiful understanding to what it is that he says, there's a balance, and this is what the faith is. You have to contend for the faith. Look to Jesus Christ. Live your life for him. So when we come to this faith, I think it's important for us to recognize it's something that all Christians should believe in. All Christians need to stand on. 
we know that our righteousness comes from the work of Jesus Christ, so we can't add to it. Every Christian knows that, but yet the difficult thing is we try to add to it. But I did this so well, Lord, do I get a blessing today? Now, in Acts chapter 2, there's a passage that hopefully will help us guide us to what, again, this faith is. There in the early church, it makes this statement in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they, this is the early church, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. There is a unity in the body of Christ that we all sought to do what? We all sought to do to, to basically look to the Lord's heart, have fellowship with one another, breaking the bread, in other words, the communion, recognizing that our forgiveness comes through Christ, and then in prayer. This is the heart, and this is where Scripture teaches. So when we are contending for the faith, it's important that we don't be contentious in the faith. Now, what do I mean by being contentious in the faith? Well, it means that you're endlessly debating minor doctrine. You're constantly wanting to sway people to your beliefs and to say, you know what, this is how you should think. This is how I think, and of course I'm right. And rather than looking to the scriptures to say, you know what, there are good men and, and, and sisters of God who will disagree on certain topics. So as we look to that, let me just give you one idea um, because sometimes this comes up. When the church, when Paul talks about the rapture being caught up, the, the church, good men of God who believe that they have the righteousness of God through the work of Jesus Christ, they kind of debate on when the rapture is going to occur. Is it going to occur before the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, at the end of the tribulation? And, and there, there's people who are, well, maybe the rapture doesn't occur at all. So, so good men of God have a disagreement on a minor doctrine. And what happens is the people are spending so much time dividing over, you're not believing the way I believe that we're not glorifying Christ. Come and let's worship Jesus with me. Let's agree to disagree agreeably in this. But yet what happens is this, is that when we become contentious, when we feel that we need to be contentious in minor doctrine, that what happens is this. There's a, a group that here Jude points out to say, this is the heart of those people. Those who constantly need to try to convince others in minor doctrine that want to constantly be contentious, you can't fellowship with me unless you believe in this minor doctrine as well. Look at verse 11 of Jude. He says this, Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. They have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. They look at these three individuals to say, these are the people, when you're contentious in all these things, you are coming under the category of three people you don't want to have a personality towards. He uses Cain, he uses Balaam, he uses Korah. Now, what is Cain? Well, we understand that the Cain is, is basically empty religion, correct? In the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 4, by faith, Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. 
See, Cain was not one to come by faith. Cain was to come by works. He didn't come by faith. By faith, Abel offered it. Cain did not. And so we see here that Cain is empty works, empty religion. Look at what I've done. Look at what I've done. I've, I've kept the law. I did this for you. Because <laughs> I don't care what you did for me. I want you to come by faith. Do you understand? I've done the work for you. This is what you need to focus on. And so often with this empty religion, when we think that by doing something, it adds to my righteousness, I want you to do it too so it can add to your righteousness. So you can have the same glorious standing before God as I do. And you're like, dude, I already have a perfect standing because of Jesus. Well, how can I add to that? And so we look to this, and I think it's important to realize that, that Cain was a thing of just empty religion. Then you have Balaam. Balaam was one who was a compromiser. There's a passage where Jesus actually speaks of Balaam himself in the church of Pergamos, Revelation 2.14. He says, but I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Balaam taught compromise. And that's what it is. You have Cain who has entered religion and works, and then you have compromise. And isn't that so often what people in the world try to teach you? It's like, you know what, you don't have to do this. You can actually do this and still have the love of God. In other words, you don't have to just read the scriptures. You know, you can read anything you want. You don't have to, you know, when you, when you watch a TV show, it doesn't make a difference what's on the screen. It doesn't make a difference what it says. It doesn't make a difference on those things. You can do anything you want, and you're what? You're under grace. See, there, there's certain things where, where the enemy in the world tries to get us to compromise on things. And yet what God says, well, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are good, focus your mind on those things. Do you understand? But when someone tries to tell you that you can compromise, it's okay to compromise. You have to realize they're, they're Balaam's. And this is what Balaam did. He taught them to compromise. In other words, if I can get personal gain out of something by not doing what God wants me to do, I'm going to want the gain. I want it for me. This is what I want. And I think this is where you see this is the heart of those people who when they constantly want to convert people into minor doctrine, you must agree with me to have this fellowship, and you're almost contentious in your beliefs that, one, it's empty religion. You're just simply doing works. Two, you're saying you can compromise this. It's okay to compromise. And the third was this. The, the, the last one is now you have this here rebellion of Korah. And so within the rebellion of Korah, keep in mind that that passage of Numbers chapter 16, that there was a point where Korah did this. I want to read to you two verses, number 16, verse 1 and 3. It makes a statement, now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Koath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram and the sons of Eliab, and on the son of Peleth, the sons of Reuben, took men. And then verse 3, and they gathered together against Moses and against Aaron, saying to them, you take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy, 
every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? You understand what he's saying? He said, they are assuming an authority that God hasn't given to them. God gave the authority to Moses. But yet they're saying, no, I am the authority. And if someone says something different, you're not the authority. They're not the authority. I'm the authority. I will take upon myself an authority that is not appointed by God. You must believe the way that I'm declaring it. Oh, really? Is that what we're supposed to do now? Do you understand how this is the rebellion of Korah? These are the men who try to constantly argue in, in minor doctrine. Now understand something about Korah. That all the other men mentioned there in verse 1 of number 16, them, their wives, their children died. But Korah stood alone. His family didn't stand with him. I want to read you one portion in Numbers chapter 26, verses 9 through 11. Listen to what it said about the sons of Korah. The sons of Eliab, he goes on naming them. These are now Dathan and Abiram, representatives of the congregation who contended against Moses and Aaron in the congregation of Korah when they contended against the Lord. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up together with Korah. And when the company died and when the fire devoured 250 men and they became a sign. And then it said this in verse 11, nevertheless, the children of Korah did not die. I want you to understand something unique about this rebellion. Korah led the rebellion, but his family didn't follow him. He was alone. But yet he wanted, follow me, follow. he got people to follow him, but his own family didn't. Do you understand the heart of Korah in his rebellion that his family saw something in him that is, I can't follow you in this way. I have to follow the Lord. And amazingly, what begins to happen is this, that he was alone. And isn't that the way that the people who are contentious, they're usually individual people who are by themselves. They're alone in their belief. They're alone in their faith. They haven't come to this understanding because they're so caught up in, I need to do this to earn righteousness. No, it's already been done. It's okay to compromise. No, it's not. And all of these things about the Lord, and, and usually what happens is we think that we have an authority that God doesn't give unto us. And so understand what the heart is, is this. It's the key is do not major in the minors. Major in the majors, of course, we should. But when it comes to this minor doctrine, simply agree to disagree agreeably. So what happens is that most minor doctrines will center on the law. Should I do this? And should I do this? And should I do this? And they focus on aspects of the law. They focus on here's a feast. Here's a festival. Do this. Do that. And so we're all focused on the feast, we're all focused on the festivals, we're all focused on the law, but what happens is this, they're all pointers to Jesus. But when they do those things, they say, look at how righteous I am. Now, it isn't wrong to, to be reminded of the feast and to be reminded of those things, but they're pointers to Christ. Look at how Christ is the answer to this. Look at how Christ is the fulfillment of this. All these things are beautiful things. They point to an area of Christ. And so keep in mind that when most people are contentious, they're usually contentious in points of the law. 
But what happens is this. Every one of us, we're part of the body of Christ. And so every one of us are going to be led just a little bit differently. Let me give you just, just two passages to focus on just when it comes down to this truth. The first is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I want to read to you verses 4 through 12. It makes this statement, speaking of how we're all different. There are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. There are diversities, oh, there are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but there's the same God who works in all. But the manifestations of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. In other words, each one gets a part so that everyone is benefited. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, and to another faith. By the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healings by the same Spirit. To another, works of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, different kinds of tongues. To another, interpretations of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. This is the heart. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of the body being many are one body and also of Christ. So do you understand what happens? We're all different. God's spirit gives to each one of us a different ministry, a different gifting. So don't expect my ministry to be the same as yours because I'm part of the body, yes. I'm just not your part of the body. Do you understand? I, I have a different gifting of the spirit. And that's where it all boils down to the key to what God tries to teach us. One other passage to close with, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. Make this declaration. It declares this. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And then it says this, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to the perfect man, to the measure of the statutes of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried away with every wind of doctrine by trickery of men and the cunning craftsfulness and deceitful plotting, but... Speaking the truth in love, may we grow up into all things to whom is the head in Christ, to whom the whole body and joints being knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. We love everyone that, even though they do something different than us. And this is what we need to contend for, that I in myself strive to say, I want to just focus on you, Jesus, and worship you. I, in myself, I want to make sure that I don't use the, the grace as a license to sin, that I do want to be led by the Spirit. If the Spirit leads me, I want to be led. If the Spirit says, don't go there, I don't want to go there. I want to be led by the Spirit. And I think it's so important that, that what I desire most is I want to contend for the faith, which is unity. Me working out what I need to do in me and loving you as he works out those things in you. And I'll tell you what, it's difficult work. It sounds easy until you try to do it. And this is where it's so important 
that we see here that this doctrine that was once and for all delivered to the saints, and that's what it says at the end of verse 3, this doctrine, once and for all, it was the word of Christ. That Jesus is the final word. He, the past, spoke through prophets, spoke through, through all kinds of people and men and dreams. But in these last days, he spoke to us through his son. And Jesus said, the volume of the book, it is written to me. I'm here as the fulfillment. And I think it's so important for us as Christians that we have gained a lot of experience in going through the scriptures. And we're going to go through it again. Starting next Sunday, we're going to start the whole Bible again. And, and so it'll probably take us another 11 years to do it again. But we're going to go through this again. And, and he's going to teach us more. But in everything that he's teaching us, what? It's appointed to Jesus. Understand that. And it's an understanding. I'm going to show you your heart and how the, the law condemns you. But in me, there's life. Come to me for life. Cling to me for life. And, and let that be what we strive so hard to accomplish, holding on to Jesus. Just hold on to him. Sounds easy, but it's difficult because there's so many other people that, that try to sway you. Your own flesh wants to sway you. The world wants to sway you. The enemy wants to sway you. Contend. Strive. Agonize over clinging to the Lord. Amen? Oh, Father, we are so grateful for this word. You and you alone have given us, Lord, an understanding of what we have in you, Jesus. And we can't add to that work. Forgive us, Lord, when we try to use the law as something to make us even better. Thinking that we can fulfill an aspect of what the law is when the fulfillment of the law for us was simply to condemn us. That was all it did, and it did this well. It drove us. It drove us to the grace that we have in you, Jesus. As we come to this grace, we don't want to use the grace as an ability to run from you, but to use the grace as an ability that, to realize that we, if we've sinned, we can still repent and you still hold on to us. You don't cast us away because we want to cling to you. We want to draw near to you. So lead us by your spirit. Teach us these things. Hold on to us, Lord. And if any of us have those minds of being contentious, Father, forgive us. Forgive us, Lord, that we could find the unity in you, and that's our heart. That we come to this place to worship you, and that's our heart. So do the work in our lives. Do the work in, in our minds, in our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name, and all the saints of God said, Amen. Amen.